Amen. Thanks, Russ. That's fantastic. Well, let's kick off. We, um, we finished last week in Isaiah 61. We're going to start now at Isaiah 61, verse 10. And uh, let me read what it says there. It says, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For those of you who don't know me that well, I am quite a forgetful person. I often forget how old my kids are. I thought my youngest kid was five. Turns out he's seven. Um, I once was trying to call Leo, my youngest, and literally listed all the other kids in the house, plus the cat, before I finally got to Leo. Poor boy. But one of the areas of forgetfulness in my life that most people know about is my navigation skills. I can literally have gone somewhere 20 or 30 times and still have to pull out Google Maps to get back. And as frustrating and as irritating as that is, particularly for Rachel, the, the part of my life that I'm most concerned about in terms of my forgetfulness is that I sometimes forget God. And as shocking a statement as that might be coming from a church leader, I don't actually think I'm alone in my spiritual amnesia. I think a lot of us do struggle with it. And this passage is talking about us delighting in God. Why? Because he is perfect. He is holy. He is the one that satisfies everything in our lives. And if you've been a Christian for any time at all, you'll know that these aren't just words that we read in the Bible. Most of us have experienced what it is to delight in God. And yet quite often, even the very next day, our thoughts, our actions, our inaction signify sometimes anything but delight in God. There seem to be a myriad of other things that we seem to treasure, thoughts that seem to captivate us instead of him. The song that we maybe should sometimes be singing is, there are lots of things that are better than you. Why is it that we find it difficult to delight in God? Why isn't it the easiest thing in the world? And why is it that God even requires us to delight, to desire him, to worship him? Doesn't that sound a little narcissistic? Isn't it enough that I just do what he says? Or maybe you're just struggling to know what desiring God even looks like. So you might have this image of, of what someone looks like who desires God. Maybe it's someone that doesn't wear shoes very much and has their hands out and sings out a tune and snot running down their faces. Is, is that what delight in God looks like? Or is that all it looks like? Or maybe you've just found yourself on a YouTube stream which you weren't searching for and you kind of coming across these Christians that seem to be singing about and speaking about being saved from sin. What, what is so bad about sin? Well, the good thing is that if you have these questions, or if I've just sowed those in your head a second ago, God actually does reveal himself in his word. He talks about himself for our benefit. But why is it important that we know God before we can delight in him? Well, that's because it's actually impossible to really delight in anyone you don't know. Now, you might be thinking, well, actually, Sean, if I'm really honest with you, I have delighted in people that I don't know. Isn't that the allure of pornography? Isn't that what 
one night hookups are all about. The fact that I can taste, but I don't have to invest or commit to the relationship. Well, that all depends on what you think delight is, you see. Delight is gladness, it's joy, it's being satisfied in the object of your delight. Shame and guilt and a gaping emotional hole are not delight. And so, God, what we think about God is critically important when it comes to who we delight in. If we just think that God is this almighty, all-powerful being who requires our worship in order for him to evidence his power, well, that's not me delighting in him. That's, that's a duty. That's something I'm compelled to do. I might worship a God like that because I would be worried about not worshiping a God like that. I'll be worrying about the penalty of not doing it. Or maybe I'd be motivated by the reward that that God might give me. But that isn't, I wouldn't delight in a God like that. Now you see, God, or the God of the Bible, is, is a God of love. He is a God of Trinity. And he is eternal. What was he doing before the creation of the world? Well, Jesus actually is helps us with that he's quite clear in John 17 verse 24 he says father you love me before the creation of the world so this all-powerful all-consuming God before he ruled before he created before he did anything he was a God he was a father who loved his son and that's critically important for us to understand before, before anything else, he was a God who loved his son. Love isn't just a mood that he kind of puts on and then takes off whenever he wants it. He actually finds his identity, his fatherhood, in eternally loving his son and the son loving the father. And so what does that mean? Well, it means that God didn't need to create us to fulfill some sort of power trip or a gaping hole in a love that was missing, he created out of a desire and a capacity for his love to overflow into those he created. And that's where we come into the picture. We're made in the image of God. And I can kind of get that to some extent because I, I have children. And me and Rach, we didn't, we didn't need to have children, but we desire to have children out of our capacity to love, and I do actually delight in my children most of the time, um, and I actually really enjoy that they delight in me, so I love that I can impart my joy and my love and, and goodness, hopefully, and some wisdom um, into their lives, and I'm, and I'm a flawed parent, but you see, one of the things I don't expect my children to do is to worship me. I think if I did, you'd probably try and lock me up and call me an egomaniac. But for some reason, God requires us to worship him. Ever thought of that? Have you ever come across people who, when you're in their presence, they just kind of lift you up? Maybe they are like super outgoing or really encouraging or they've always got like a nugget of wisdom to impart to you or maybe they're really approachable and you know that if you tell them something that you're ashamed of, you know you're not going to be condemned, and yet you leave 
having like turned away from that sin anyway. Or maybe they're like really generous and you, you kind of leave and find like notes stashed in your pocket. Well, think of that and multiply that up to infinity and add power, joy, radiance, perfection, no shadows, no no-go areas. Well, that is God. That is who he is. And if, if to glory in that perfection, if being in his presence makes me a fully formed human being the way I was made to be, if, if it's true that you, you start to behave like and look like that which you worship, well then surely it would not be loving if he didn't require us or at least encourage us or draw us to worshiping him. Because to, like, to worship anything else would be to worship something of a less value, something cheap or something counterfeit. And so that's why it's good for us to worship him. But that's not even the best part. So it's, it's not like he just gives us worship as a tool so that we get better, like we become fully formed. He actually enjoys that we worship him. He actually desires it. He, he doesn't just tolerate the awkwardly drawn pictures that we present to him or the untuned vocals that we sing to him or the trying to present something great to him. He actually really loves it. It's incredible. That's who he is. So why is it not very easy or why is it sometimes difficult for us to desire God? Why isn't that the thing that he just makes us just do anyway? Well, sin has had a devastating relationship, um, devastating effect on our relationship with him. This perfect, holy God was rejected by his own creation, his children. And so that sin has created a barrier between us and him. Adam and Eve chose, we chose to carve out our own existence, to choose dominance rather than a dependency on this loving father. We chose a counterfeit rather than the perfect. So from one day where Adam and Eve were communing with God in the cool of the day and every day God was initiating this relationship and turning up every day for that, one day Adam and Eve just stopped coming. And ever since then, humankind has, has fallen into the same thing. So much so that they hid from him because of their sin and their shame and they, they had to be covered with garments. Something had to be sacrificed in order to cover that sin, the holy for the unholy. And so when Isaiah's readers read this passage, they, they would have remembered, oh, there was a moment in a garden, the first garden and the first act of grace where the first sin was covered. But not only that, Isaiah was foreshadowing the, the greatest ever demonstration of love that we will ever know. The father giving his son, sending his son, the son willingly leaving his throne to be separated from the father, an eternal communion that he had in order to reconcile our separation from him dying on a cross 
And in that very act, Jesus, the perfect son, his perfection and his righteousness clothed us. We were robed in his righteousness, which means that we are then declared perfect or able to stand perfect in front of a perfect father again. And we actually bring absolutely nothing to the table. And so if you ask that, why do Christians go on about like their salvation and singing about all the stuff? Well, it's unmerited grace. Like we didn't bring anything to it. Jesus did literally everything for us. That's why we're so hip about it. And Isaiah, I think, the reason why he then kind of uses this um, marriage and wedding imagery is he's trying to kind of bring, the, bring it home. Um, he's saying, well, not only do, does that act mean like reconciliation and good standing in front of a perfect God again, it, it means that we are called into like perfect and beautiful relationship with the living God. So much so that if you like give yourself to him, you will be changed in the process. Isaiah kind of finds the only thing he can think of, the richest and best covenant relationship this side of heaven to describe it. This wedding, the anticipation, the excitement, and then a marriage where two people over time give themselves to each other and are satisfied and delighted in each other. That's what he's talking about. Often we think of godliness or even like getting rid of stuff in our life that we don't like. We think that the way to do that is to like, just to try harder, like just pure self-denial, willpower. But interestingly, the Christian God, God of the Bible says, no, find me as I've revealed myself and you'll be satisfied in me so much so that all your vices and your counterfeits will kind of lose value in your heart. I, um, I love Rachel. Rachel's my wife, just so that you know that. Um, and we met really young, but very quickly I realized that I wanted to be with this, this woman for all my life. And if I think back to my decisions and choices and preferences before I loved her and then after I loved her, they are wildly different, like wildly different. So after I loved her, I stopped desiring other women. Like I stopped wanting to hook up with other girls. Not that I was any good at that anyway, to be honest with you. I dramatically changed the way I spent my money. Not that I had any of that either. I was a real catch. Um, I... I changed, I changed how I spent my time. I became less selfish. I became more patient. I became more generous. And like, if you heard that, you wouldn't say, oh, wow, I found Mr. Super Willpower. You would just say, no, that's what, that's what love does. And um, in Matthew 13, uh, 44, Jesus talks this very famous parable. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that was hidden in a field and a man finds it, hides it again and then in joy, with joy, sells everything else he has in order to have the field. 
And it's interesting, like, there's a simple but quite profound principle that we all kind of, to some extent, live by. And it's something like this. Sacrifice gratification now for something greater later. Like, we all make preferential decisions in our life, like every single day. Our heart is like a desire factory. We sort of, if we choose something, it inevitably means we're not choosing something else. So, um, running instead of sleeping, right? The sacrifice now is lack of sleep, freezing cold, I want to throw up, right? But the benefit later is I'm healthier, I'm probably prolonging my life, I'm looking better, and I'm probably less tired over time. Or um, salad or dominoes, right? The sacrifice now is I don't feel very fulfilled, I'm still hungry after I eat it, and I'm still craving the pizza. But the benefit later is I'm losing weight, I look really good, um, I'm healthier, prolonging my life, and actually, interestingly, apparently, I stop desiring food that doesn't do me any good over time. Now, those are kind of like selfish benefits, though, isn't it, in a way you could say. But then why do people give up and sacrifice their money and resources and time for other people or even to God? You could say, oh, that's selfish as well, like, you know, you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. But if you really look at the relationships that last, the ones that seem to grow stronger over time, it's love. It's the fact that they are more satisfied and delight in that relationship than all the other things that kind of, yeah, they satisfy to some extent, but they're not as valuable as this. So, like, willing to give that up, especially if doing this stuff weakens this. This is the way we think. Think about having kids. Massive sacrifice. Like, everything changes. You give up, give up on your cool car. You um, give up on sleeping. You throw enormous amounts of money um, into something that just people that will not benefit you, that they don't benefit you at all. They completely benefit the child. The child doesn't thank you for it. Uh, you, you dramatically change how you spend your time. You find yourself on the floor playing My Little Ponies and putting on an American accent. Why would you do that? It's because you prefer them. Where in your life are you preferring God? What ridiculous, obsessive stuff do you do because you're more delighted in him and satisfied in him than other things? What do you say no to because he is more satisfying? I want to offer a challenging thought. If you struggle to answer that question, there's a chance that you maybe don't delight in Jesus. You don't desire him. And inevitably, that means that you don't necessarily glorify him. You see, God is not interested in outward expressions of worship or desire that don't initiate and are sustained by a heart of affection. So you could be like turning up to church or tuning into church, sorry, every single week. You could even be singing the songs. 
You might even be one of these people that like makes notes during the preach, but like you might not actually be doing that because you necessarily love Jesus. It could be that you do it because you've been told that's the thing I should do. Maybe family heritage. Or maybe even it's a, I'll scratch your back, God, but if I'm in a tricky position, I'm expecting you to scratch mine. Or maybe it's that you are finding satisfaction and delight in the gifts that he gives, the relationships that he gives in creation itself, where that should be a doorway through which we delight in God, and yet your delight seems to terminate or find its destination in the gift, in the relationship. That's called idolatry. And even a child, even a marriage, even a relationship can be idolatry if it doesn't find its final delight in the giver of the gift. So what do we do? How do we, how do we change that thing in us? Well, if you were really paying attention, you would have noticed that I, I talked about the Trinity but didn't even talk about the third person of the Trinity. And a fascinating aspect of the love of God is that the Father declares his love for the Son and his pleasure in him as the Spirit rests on Jesus. The way the Father makes known his love is precisely through giving his Spirit. In Romans 5 verse 5 it says, God poured out his love through his Spirit. So, the Father, the, the Spirit stirs up delight of the Father for the Son, and He stirs up delight of the Son for the Father. That's what He does. And how often do we ask the Holy Spirit to stir up our love for Him? It's literally what He does. Like, if He can do it in the Godhead, I think He can do it in us as well. And I just want to challenge us, really, like even this week, why don't you just change a couple of ways in how you pray? Like instead of just praying, God, help me to do this, this, and this, or help me not to do this, this, and this, and instead pray, Holy Spirit, stir up my love for you. Like reveal Jesus in all his glory and splendor so that I like, gaze at him and love him more. Cause me to cry out, Abba, Father. And let's just see what happens to our patterns of sin. Sam Storms, who was um, a great writer and theologian, he says, it is a dreary holiness indeed that is merely resisting sin. The joy of holiness is found in having heard a sweeter song. The essence of loving living as a follower of Jesus isn't in trying harder, but in enjoying more. I'm not saying that you can change without trying. I'm saying that enjoyment empowers effort. Pleasure in God is the power for purity. Do you know God as he is revealed in Scripture, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Or are you still maybe seeing him more as this cosmic policeman in the sky if you're asking questions like what can I get away with doing what can I get away with saying what can I get away with looking at how little can I serve 
How much do I really have to give? Is tithing really what the Bible's requiring of me? See, I would suggest if you're, having, if you're asking those kind of questions, then it may not be that you are worshiping the God revealed in the Bible, the one who's worked salvation for us, the one who we'll stand in front of for eternity, the one who's beautiful in his creation and he gives these gifts and these people around us. I think if you were truly, if we are truly worshiping that God, we'd be saying things like, how much more can I do? What can I do which is gonna make me love you more? What can I say to a world that doesn't know you that they need this love as well? What can I look at and gaze at that's gonna make me delight in you more? Who, who should I be hanging around with who's gonna signpost me to delight in God more? What can I, what can I give What can I give that's going to make me delight and be satisfied in you alone? If my treasure is where my heart is, then what do I need to give to make sure that you are my treasure? See, there is a cost to following Jesus. Massive cost. Literally, all of you, if you truly want to follow him. But you cannot do it with willpower. You can only do it in love, powered by the Holy Spirit. And we're running out of time a bit, but I I just want to kind of throw out a few other practical things that I've found really helpful in my life is constantly be thankful for your salvation. Like never move far from that. Like we constantly need a reminder that we are, we have an unmerited blessing, that we are trophies of grace, that we are just broken people, that he has masterfully, masterfully restored back together again hang out with people that do you good like seriously I'm in a DNA group with a couple of guys and they are sharpening me and I hope I'm sharpening them as well I think I'm becoming less selfish a better parent a better father more prayerful and I'm pondering and gazing at God more that's doing me good do that read the Bible every single day Now you might say, well, that sounds like legalism, Sean. Why would you put a rule in place? Surely if I just delighted in God and desired him, that would just automatically follow. Well, if you are facilitating an environment where you get to gaze at God, the chances are you're probably gonna delight in him more than if you don't do that. Like creation that he gives us, the gifts that he gives us, the people that he puts in our path, Yeah, fantastic, but revelation, like there's nothing better than that. We're kind of out of time and I just wanna finish with this um, just final little story. Um, I am in love with Rachel. I told you that already. I I must be completely obsessed. But before before I married her, I I couldn't wait for the day that I could spend the rest of my life with her, that I could be at home with her, that I could be in her presence and then not have to say goodbye anymore. And we, we met when we were 16, so we waited five years to get married. It felt like an absolute eternity. But to be honest, waiting was all I had. <laughs> but my waiting, it wasn't casual waiting. Like if you, if you knew me then, if you saw me, you wouldn't think that anything I was doing in my life at that point was not just getting ready for the 
moment that I get to spend the rest of my life with her. Like you wouldn't have found me applying for jobs that would have taken me away from her or you wouldn't have found me spending my money on anything that would have weakened my relationship or my marriage for the future. You wouldn't have found me sowing wild oats and sleeping with loads of women because I couldn't have her yet. Everything in my life was pointing to a destination. And as much as I love Rachel, and hopefully my actions have proved that, my relationship with her actually pales in the light of my relationship with perfect love. You know, when I was, when Rachel finally walked down the aisle, when we got married, I stupidly kept my gaze looking forward because I didn't think I could hold it together. Didn't think I could hold the tears back. But I really should have looked at her radiance at that point. But as radiant as Rachel was on that day, so much so that I couldn't even look at her, that also pales into insignificance compared to the day that we will see Jesus face to face. And then forever and ever and ever, we will delight in him and never find an end to that delight. And those that don't choose him, won't have him. In Revelation 21 too, it says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making all things new. You know, I started by saying that I often have spiritual amnesia and like that's really true. Sometimes I forget my first delight. But you know, the more that I have delighted and found satisfaction in God, the better my spiritual memory has become. And I can honestly say that I, I find pure joy in being satisfied in God. It is a pathway to peace. It's not a duty. I don't feel compelled to do it for duty's sake. He doesn't have to drag me into holiness. And you know, if you're an unbeliever at the moment, you might think these Christians are just misery guts people. I want to challenge your assumption. I would never give up on my delight for yours. And I want to invite you to taste and see that he is good. I have people and friends in my life who have had hideous ordeals over the last few years. One that almost died because of cancer. Others whose husbands have just walked out on them even, if, even though they promised faithfulness and fidelity. And even during the worst of that time, they seem to radiate. It's almost like their delight in God went up a notch. How is that possible? It's because their treasure is not of earth, it is of heaven. Our treasure is Jesus. The world needs this pure delight. And I wanna encourage you to just tell the world about this master restorer that we have.
let's sing this final worship song together and just an opportunity for you just to do some business with him. We'd love to pray with you. Please send in your requests and yeah, just be in a place of just receiving him right now.